So we're going to open today with Psalm 25, and Tim is going to lead us in song. <laughs> song? <laughs> okay, this is actually in parts. Okay. Well, okay. How's it go? Sorry. <laughs> All right, this is back from my Holy Roller days, so, so you guys might not know this, but uh, here's how it goes. Okay. Um, so the men start unto the O Lord, and then the women echo. You know this, Karen? Oh, me and Karen can sing it. Wait, that's what I think it is. Yes. So the men start uh, unto the O Lord, and then the women go unto the O Lord, and then the men say, "Do I lift up my soul?" And the women say, "Do I lift up my soul?" Then together, it's, "Oh my God, I trust in Thee." Let me not be ashamed without my enemies triumph over me. What what translation are you using? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, Karen, so unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Oh my God, oh my God, I trust in thee, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed, but not my enemies triumph over me. Yeah, I'm sure it's King James. Anyway, that's just a couple of verses. One and like 20. <laughs> but you can read the whole chapter too. What? Go ahead and go ahead and read. I'm no, I can't read. Okay. All right, I'll try. I'll try. Give me a shot. You need to right. I can no. Yeah, that would help me a lot. <laughs> All right, then you guys have to sing it on your own uh, later. Um, to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of these who wait for thee will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me... Know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all day. Remember, O Lord, thy compassion and thy loving kindness. For they have been from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, Lord, or my transgressions. According to thy loving kindness, remember uh, thou me for thy loving kindness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, he teaches the humble his ways. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. To those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the ways he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them known his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. 
Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. In troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look unto my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hated me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for thee. Remember Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Thank you. All right, you guys can go ahead and sing. <coughs> and, and it goes like this. It goes, unto you, O Lord. Unto you, O Lord. Unto you, Do I lift up my soul? Lift up my soul. That's a, that's a great one. Um, and that's, they, they are actually supposed to be songs. <laughs> this one doesn't have any direction to the choir master, but most of them you know, have some kind of direction to the choir master. So that, that's great. So <coughs> it is a song. Right? It is a song. All these are songs, and there is actually uh, a meter and and all of that associated with this type of literature. So, so uh, last night was a drawing for nine hundred million dollars. How many? How many had their entry? Nine million dollars. Anybody buy a lottery ticket? Something that looks like this? <laughs> it didn't change your odds much. So, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't change your odds much. Yeah. No way. So, at, 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 uh, well, actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. So, this is an object, object lesson, right? So, uh, and it's totally random. You know, it, it makes no sense to craft your numbers or anything like that. There's no magic uh, associated with lotteries. Um, and I think your odds were about one in 300 million of actually winning. So that means, and there's, you know, 300 million folk in the U.S., so you might be the lucky one, right? And the, the question I had, and we got this last night at, right before the cutoff. So the cutoff was at 7 o'clock. We got it at 6.36. You know, it's like 900 million. Yeah, yeah, I'll throw my three bucks in there. Um, well, two two box, and then you you get the kicker or whatever. So uh, it's like, where is my where is my my trust? Where is my hope? Is it in a lottery ticket? And it was interesting because you know when you have a big lottery like this, they gotta interview a whole bunch of folks. What would you do if you won the lottery? Right? And uh, there was this one gal. Who's, who was talking about, I'd give it all away. You know, I would solve the homeless problem, I would do this, I would do that. And then she looked up and she said, does that merit? You know, should I win? Should I win? And I was like, that's, that's the way a lot of folks think, right? But really, I mean, this is, this is entertainment. Karen and I, uh, we just talk about, we used to, they used to have that sign when we would drive in on our commute every morning. It's long lost relatives standing by. So every once in a while, when it would get up to two hundred million or so, we would actually buy a ticket. Well, they said somebody killed somebody after they won it. Well, and yeah, there's a history of how actually this is a great curse. 
It's it not. Is. It's not a blessing. It isn't. A lot of people would think, oh yeah, if I had all of the problems in the world solved, I would be blessed, right? And yet we read in the 25th Psalm here, you know, you get to the to the end of it, the the um, the peace that David has is his trust in the Lord, and. He says, uh, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. You know, I mean, that's that should be the song in our heart, is waiting on the Lord. And then remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness. That's what characterizes God. Um, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. So we want God to actually see us in a different light. What light do we want God to see us in? Jesus' light. Yeah. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. In other words, he created us for good works. He leads us, he leads the humble in justice. And teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Wouldn't it be a different world if, if everybody walked in the paths that the Lord led them in loving kindness and truth? To those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And we do that because of who he is. For your name's sake, O Lord. But here I am, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. That's what that psalm is talking to us about. And you get to the end of that, and he says, Be gracious to me, turn to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are huge, my paraphrase. Bring me out of my distress. Look upon my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. So understanding the very nature of what causes us to be in suffering and um, discontent. Right, forgive my sins look upon my enemies for they are many and they hate me with a violent hatred they don't fit here guard my soul and deliver me do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you and then there's this, this final phrase this is coming from David this is a psalm of David he says redeem Israel O God out of all his troubles so who is Israel is one of the questions. But when I look upon this, I, and I look upon the object lesson in my faith this morning, lottery ticket, um, I think about, this is, this is fun, and it's good that we didn't win. Although we, we talk about it, we play with it, I don't know what would really happen if we did win. Um, but I would hope it wouldn't change anything. I'd Dave. Pardon? Hi, brother David. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're a long-lost Indeed, long-lost relative standing by. Indeed. Um, but, you know, there was a, a hope that the Hebrew nation had. What was that hope that the Hebrew nation had? What was the hope that, and, and when I say the Hebrew nation, who is the Hebrew nation? Pardon? The, the Jews, which we understand that that nation went through a, a great deal of struggle and to the point where 
they were essentially decimated, the tribes or the families of that nation, uh, to one remaining tribe, the tribe of Judah, that stood intact. And that tribe was led off into captivity. And it was at that point, when they were led off into captivity, that as a, uh, a slur against them, using their name in derision, they called them Jews, because they were Judites. They were from the tribe of Judah. And that's where we get the name Jews from. Um, but we also apply it to the larger of the Hebrew nation, because that's just what we do. We generalize things into categories. So we say anybody that's of this, this lineage, this descent, this heritage, is Jewish. Um, but technically, the word Jew would be only one-twelfth of, of that group. Uh, so that would, when I say one-twelfth, that's going back to the sons of um, who? Right, so Abraham had a son, a promise, whose name was Isaac, and he had two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? And which was the son of promise? Jacob, even though he took it by deceit, right? So Isaac intended, in his worldly wisdom, to bless the firstborn. But God had a different, different way that that was going to happen. It was going to play out. That he was going to allow Jacob in his worldly scheming to steal the blessing. Right? But then he was going to change Jacob. And we know that because when you read the story of Jacob, Jacob went off. He had to run off because his brother Esau was going to kill him. And uh, so he goes to his uncle Laban, who is crafty and clever like Jacob is, although Jacob is craftier craftier than his uncle, and he schemes him out of his property and his his inheritance, his family, his daughters, and uh, he takes off with a with a great uh, a great army essentially, and he comes to the river, the Jordan River, and he comes to a place where there's a creek that comes into the Jordan River in a place called Peniel. And it's called Peniel today because that means face of God. Uh, the Hebrew for face is pen and uh, El is God, so face of God, Peniel. And at that place, Jacob wrestled with God. That's what we read about in Genesis. And what you see is a transformation that happens in Jacob's life where he, um, even though he had had visions before and he knew of the God of his father's, all of a sudden, the God of his fathers became his God. The God of his fathers was the God that was talked about by Isaac and his grandfather, Abraham. And so, a lot of this goes back to that guy, Abraham. What, what is important about Abraham? Pardon? The covenant. There was a covenant that God, between God and Abraham, that had um, inheritable implication, right? It wasn't just something that was bound to Abraham's lifetime. It was actually intended for uh, the descendants of Abraham. And actually, if we look at the covenants in the Bible, it goes all the way back to the very beginning where man was created. How was man created? Go back to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Right? You get to the sixth day, 
and uh, and I'll I'll take you to Genesis chapter one, um, verse twenty six. And this there's kind of a, a break or a bump in the discourse here of the create of the creation. It says then in chapter one verse twenty six. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness." And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God created man, he created him to be uh, in dominion. He created him to be a delegated king. Who was the creator? God. But he entrusted his creation into the hands of one that was created in his image. So that's what we see. God created man in his image and then blessed him said, be fruitful, multiply, and then be in dominion over my creation. And in verse 31 we read, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So, you know, when you look at the creation of God, he's going through, this is good, this is good, this is good. And he gets to the creation of humanity and this administration that God has put in place over his creation. And he says, this is very good. This is the way it's supposed to be. And there was no distinction. <clears throat> At this point, we know that there was a man and a woman. But even as that man and woman multiplied and were fruitful, um, there was no distinction of that blessing intent for all of humanity. In other words, it wasn't for one group of people. It wasn't for uh, the descendants of Shem necessarily, right? It actually was intended for all of humanity. God said, this is very good and I want to bless you. That's the whole thing, he wants to bless. So, but we understand in chapter 3 that things went wrong. And what went wrong? It's a chick's fault, I heard. <laughs> that was what the comedian said. I don't know that that's true. The serpent uh, twisted God's word around and made yep. it his own. Yep. There was a deception that occurred, a twisting of God's word. And there was a deception that happened, and the woman was deceived, and the man followed. And it doesn't say that the man was deceived, because he knew the command. And, and they, they rebelled against God. They desired to make themselves God. They desired to declare what was good and what was evil. And move outside of God's shalom, his intended, his way that, that he made things. And as a result, bad things happen, right? Work, which was designed to be good, God is creative and working. So work is not bad. It became toil. And bringing life came through great pain rather than great joy. And even though we understand and we celebrate in joy, it's through great pain and struggle that life continues in God's creation. But he also made a covenant, because when this happened, he didn't leave these people alone. 
He said, I'm going to redeem this situation. And we read that in Genesis chapter 3, um, verse 15. He talks, uh, he's talking to the one who brought um, this uh, deception and rebellion. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Or you shall, um, he, it, it could be read, he will crush you. It'll be fatal. Um, he'll step on you and smash you. Even though you cause injury to him. Right? So that's, there's a statement of what's going to happen and that that would come through the seed of the woman. That there would be a, uh, a redemption through the human line to, to overthrow this rebellion, right? To make things right again. And that it would not be without cost because the last thing that happened is uh, Adam and Eve are having to leave the garden because they can't stay there. They can't stay in this place of sin because if they stay there, that corruption will actually cause eternal death. And that God's desire is not that they would die, but that they would live. And even though death has entered in, he wants to create uh, a separation such that they can be redeemed. And in doing that, it says in verse 21, chapter 3, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then he kicked them out of the garden. He separated them. So he, there was a sacrifice that was made, a blood sacrifice, in order to provide a covering. So this is the very first part of that promise, that covenant that is made, is that there would be a covering, an atonement. Mitch? Yeah, this all sounds more like a prophecy rather than a covenant. It is a prophecy, and, and I, I'm leaning more towards uh, covenant theology when I'm calling it covenant, because there is a, a, a firm declaration in the prophecy that... God will unilaterally do something. So he will crush the head of the serpent. And so when we look at covenant, it can be a bilateral covenant. In other words, both parties have a piece. Or it can be a unilateral covenant. And what we're going to see is that the covenants of God up through uh, the Mosaic covenant are all unilateral covenants. They all follow this form. And the next covenant you're going to see is where um, God, uh, he gets so, um, so sad about the, uh, the, what sin is doing to humanity and the corruption of sin um, that he decides to wipe out all life, but he preserves a single line, right? And at the end of that, he says, you know, I just... Uh, made a judgment on humanity. I judged that um, that death would come, and it had to come now. But I'm going to hold that judgment, that final judgment, where all humanity has to stand accountable until the very end. Would you pray for again? She's going home. She's sure. Let's go ahead and uh, and pray for that real quick. Lord, um, we just ask your hand of, of uh, healing and comfort be upon Annette right now. Um, Lord, is, um, she's um, not feeling well, and just ask that you would um, bring about for her 
wholeness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this. In your name we pray. Amen. So, so I, I guess I'm, I'm leaning on the side of covenant theology as opposed to dispensational theology at this point when I'm wrapping these up as covenants. But um, I think that there's merit to that when you look at what makes a covenant. So that's why I'm, I'm doing that. And so we would go from, from the covenant with Adam, that there would be a redemption, to the covenant with Noah, where um, the, that redemption, the final phase of that redemption where there is full judgment upon humanity would be held until the very end. That humanity would be given a chance to actually enter in to that. And that, again, that was not without cost. And then we see that as you move through Genesis, you get to uh, the covenant with Abraham. And that covenant with Abraham starts talking more about what it looks like on the redeemed side than it does on the um, destroyed side. Right? So we understand when death enters in, there's destruction. Um, and when life is there, it's anti-destruction. Right? So we want to look on the life side, not the death side. And when you get to Abraham, what does life look like? Well, it looks like um, three things. That you have uh, a place in God's kingdom and that you are a citizen of that kingdom, you're one of the people of God, and that um, you're not separated from God's blessing. In fact, that blessing is present with you continually, that God is present, because he is the source of blessings. You're always in God's presence. And as you go through Genesis, you see that more clearly formulated. And and the the fact that it's a unilateral covenant rather than a bilateral covenant um, is also more clearly formulated. So we get to a point where in uh, this covenant being laid out, there is a cost, there is a a blood um, sacrifice, and there is the light of God walking in the midst of that blood sacrifice. Abraham did not participate in that. That was a vision that he had. So it was unilateral. God was doing this on the behalf of humanity, and he was doing it through this, what would become a nation of, from Abraham. And Abraham, we know, had two sons. He actually had more than two sons. But he had two sons. The first one was named Ishmael. And was Ishmael the son of promise? No, it was the son of, of Abraham having been given the promise, trying to bring it about through human means. The other was the son of promise. In fact, uh, God made sure that they would understand that he was the son of promise because Abraham was, you know, 100 years old and Sarah was long beyond the, the age of childbearing. And when she heard that this was going to happen, what did she do? She giggled. She laughed. So when this child was born, she named him Laughter. Isaac. That's the word for laughter in, in uh, Hebrew. And so this descendants of Isaac remain to this day. God is faithful and has preserved this people group even to this day. And that Isaac had uh, sons um, and that that son Jacob then uh, had 12 sons. And we understand there it wasn't the firstborn either that got the blessing through whom all of humanity, this covenant, would be fulfilled. 
the very beginning, this covenant, and that's why I'm using the word covenant here, was for all humanity. God desired to bless everyone, not just this single group of people. And yet, from Abraham on, there was a division in that these people were separated out in the world and to the point of offense. They thought they were something special, even though God told them, said, you're not anything special. In fact, of all the people in the world, you're the least likely that I would pick. I'm doing this because this is how I show that I'm God and you're not. And yet the people group got very proud. They got very much like the nations around them to the point of corruption. And, uh, and that's why God brought judgment within that people group. Those that he cares about, he judges. You know, and we read about that. That's a proverb. If, uh, if you're a father and you have a son that's acting out, and uh, because you love him, you correct him. And that correction, if you're the one being corrected, most of the time doesn't feel good because you don't get your way, right? You get what's, what is truly a blessing. And it's hard to think about um, suffering as blessing, but indeed it is if it's in correction. If it's suffering because of sin, that's a different thing. But if it's suffering because God's correcting you to redeem you from sin, that's a blessing. So then we look at the covenants as they go through, and we go from um, Abraham to Moses, and that's the bilateral covenant. Because it's like when you take out a loan, right? You sign a promissory note as part of your loan. And that promissory note obligates you to certain um, contractual um, elements that you need to fulfill. And if you fail to fulfill those, you get the cursings. And if you succeed in fulfilling those, you get the blessings, right? But it's bilateral. The bank is blessing you. If you fulfill the the terms of the covenant, um, you are promising that you will fulfill the terms, right? So it's bilateral, both enter in. And it isn't that the bank just gives you money in hopes that you come along and sign someday and decide to pay them back. No, it's, it's bilateral. Well, what we understand is that the blessing of God God's grace always creates obligation. That's what God's trying to communicate. That um, salvation, although it's a free gift, we can't cause God to save us in any way. There's nothing that we bring. Nonetheless, his grace on our behalf creates in us an obligation to participate in his creation as he intended Right? He created us for good works. And so um, that's what the Mosaic Covenant is about. It's about helping people understand that salvation is not free in the sense of um, you have no further obligation. Rather, you have an obligation to be gracious as he is gracious. And that's what we read in the psalm. Right? That We are to, I'll I'll go back to that psalm and and read those words. Important to read. So we get to Psalm 25. Because this is a consistent theme that we're seeing throughout the Bible. And it actually is going to lead us into chapter 3 of Ephesians. So trust me, there is a a method to my madness here. It says, he instructs, uh, God is upright, uh, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. 
He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. To those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. In other words, that's that obligation that's created as a result of God's goodness and uprightness. Because of who he is, he redeems, and that redemption causes us to get back on the right course. Right? So that's God's grace. Um, even though it's uh, unilateral to us, it creates in us an obligation back to God to walk in his paths, to practice justice. Right? So we're to be righteous, we're to be holy as he is holy is what we see. And we, we found that people really got, got tripped up on that. They, they turned it into um, a set of rules that is like a checklist. Right? So if you keep the checklist just right, you had merit and you were good. And if you didn't, then you would get, you would get you know, derision from your neighbors, you would get social consequence, and you might even have legal consequence if you didn't follow the the law of the Jews exactly, right? So it became a burden rather than a blessing. It became, rather than being instructional, the law being in a tutor, it became uh, 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 a yoke that was heavy to bear. That was the language that was given by both Paul and other authors in the New Testament. And so what did God do? Well, he gave us the promise of his coming Redeemer, And he gave that to David. He said, okay, my redemption of humanity is going to be through this line, through this people that are descendants of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, um, through the line specifically of David, the line of the king, would come one who is both a a king, a prophet, a priest, and a king. Right? That Messiah, the anointed one of God, would come through that line. And then finally he said, and what that Messiah will do, we read about in Jeremiah, chapter 31, is he would actually transform people. He would cause us not to be um, like you're a broken car and you go in for repair. He would actually give you a new heart. It's not patching up the old, but giving you something new entirely. So God's redemption is a new work. And that we have those promises and there's the people that received those promises happened to be the, the Jews, the Hebrews, the descendants through this line. And yet, it was never intended from the beginning to only be limited to that line. And so when Christ came into the world, there was a lot of confusion. Because he came to his own. Right? That's what he did. He came to those that were of this descendancy. And he preached to them what God uh, had told him to say. And yet they rejected him. And it wasn't because they rejected him that that message went broader. It was because God always intended it to go broader. It was always for everybody. It's just that by necessity, he had to be born through this lineage. And in this way. And to bring salvation in this way. But once it was brought, it was once and for all time for all people. Not just once and for all time for a select people. And that's what Paul 
is addressing now in Ephesians. First, he gives us that whole picture that I just gave you. I just gave you a chronology of the covenants, of the promise. And I, and I mentioned that I would read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, because it'll tell you exactly what I just told you, phrased in a little different way. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in this promise. Our hope is in his character. If we have any confidence at all, our confidence is in God's faithfulness to that which he has declared. That's our hope. It isn't one of those lottery tickets. And what Paul is then expounding upon as he desires that we would, um, we look at the, that his prayer that we would uh, have revealed to us. Let me see if I can go through it. Revelation of knowledge of him. That we might uh, be, and I'm reading in uh, verse in chapter one of Ephesians, uh, verses 17, 18, 19, that uh, says, "For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith and of, of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and of your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers." And this is his prayer: that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. So Paul, having told us all of these things are true, says this is what I, I desire for you. This is his prayer. And then he we read through how he sums up the gospel message in chapter 2, and he gets to the end of chapter 2, and what he's talking about at the end of chapter 2 is the church. He's talking about those who have um, embraced the grace of God. And how do you embrace the grace of God? We read in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, it says, "For For by grace you have been saved. Right? The grace of God to us. How do we embrace it? Through faith. 
And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We trust not based on what we do, but based on who he is. Right? So what happens is in this, this process of being saved, in that process of creating in us an obligation for the grace that we receive, we turn in obedience to him. In fact, Bob did that just a few weeks back when he stood before the whole body and made his confession of his belief and was baptized into Christ's death and raised into his eternal life. <clears throat> Not that <clears throat> that moment is when that occurred, but it was uh, a symbol of that which had already occurred on the inside. It was a testimony to the outside. That was a good work. And that is what the church is supposed to do. And that's what we read about at the end of chapter 2. But there's supposed to be a unity. And this unity means that there is no longer a Jew and a Greek. Or a Gentile and a Hebrew. We're all one. The, le- the playing field is leveled. Jack. Uh, repeat what you just said about a good work. Um. Specifically, what are okay? A good work would be doing that which uh, God would do, right? So God is about justice and righteousness, um, loving kindness, right? He's gentle. He's forgiving. Um, so to do a good work would be to be doing those things, and you do it not because of who you are, but because of who He is. That's what faith is. Your faith is in him, not in doing that work. And and the goodness of that work is because that's who he is. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Is that what you were asking about? It was was an act of obedience. But the obedience was to what had already been done. Right? And so he was turning that grace outward to the congregation. And as Tim pointed out, Afterwards, in that pregnant pause that occurred while we were waiting for the screen to come down, um, we should have entered into prayer corporately. We should have all just been so thankful of what God has done for us and what Bob was giving testimony to. And I'll admit my failure and foible and that I, I looked out and, and was speechless. And I should have been full of speech and praise, right? Should have been fully for the glory of God, and it was for the glory of God, but I just know that I should have done that one more thing. So, so that's what a good work is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So a good work isn't winning the lottery and giving it all away. Is that good enough, God? <laughs> right? That's what, the, that's what the gal said. Is that good enough, God? Will you, will you give it to me now? Um, that's not what it is. It's doing that which God would do, which is to bring life and blessing. Right? And, and that's really hard because we have a whole lot of selfish interests. Um, there's a lot of things I want to do. Put that capital I in there and bold and underline it. It's like, ooh, I don't like it, but it's true. Um, and, and that's why it's so hard. That's why we struggle through this. That's why, and the enemy of, of who caused this deception to begin with, he wants to accuse us. He is the accuser. When I fail, which is often, he's right there saying, see, I told you so. <laughs> told you so. In fact, that's what the book of Job is about, right? What What's the setting for Job? Well, it's kind of like, okay, I'm tending 
Sunday school, that's a good work. Yeah. Right, it's a good work. And that's not what it is at all. We know that Jesus went to synagogue. Why did he go to synagogue? Because that's where you get to talk and hang out and praise God. Right? It's all about his father. It wasn't about, oh, I got to go to synagogue because uh, it's Saturday and I got to make sure that I do it within this walk. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of a, a fine nuance between that which is us and that which is about him. That which brings glory to God and that which brings glory to us. Very, I mean, you can have the same appearance on the outside of that work, and yet what's actually occurring can be two different things. And that's, that's what's really hard. Because at the end of the day, when the Spirit of God shines his bright light on me, and I want to cower and hide because it's like, whoa, I don't like seeing that. But God, in his loving kindness, shows me that. Because right? he's desiring that I would be transformed into the image of his son. And these are the, this is the language that you see in the New Testament. Right? That's what's going on. So that's why I say grace creates an obligation. When we, when we receive that grace, which has nothing to do with us, it's all to do with God, it's about who he is, and we embrace that in faith, that then obligates me to be holy as he is holy, if I want to continue that relationship. And when you study the Old Testament sacrificial system, so we are doing that study in our home group, and now we're moving into Galatians, which is another great study. When we were looking at Leviticus, we were looking at what is Leviticus about, because that's under the Mosaic Covenant, right? There are two things that Leviticus is about. It's about how you gain access to God, so if you've been separated, you're kicked out of the kingdom. And that's what happened. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, right? How do you gain access to God? And then once you've gained access, how do you have fellowship with God? And we find out in Leviticus that access is gained through sacrifice. And fellowship or relationship is gained through um, holiness, right? So God didn't just save us so that we could have access. He saved us so that we could have fellowship. Therefore, we need to be holy as he is holy. So that grace creates an obligation in us to be gracious as he is gracious. That loving kindness creates an obligation in us to be loving kind as he is. Um, that we should do in the face of injustice that which is right. So there is never going to be anything right in this world until the righteous king comes back. And that's going to feel really bad. We're going, to, we're going to feel like we're prisoners. But we're prisoners for Christ. And that's what Paul's going to tell us. Um, so I want to clarify for me uh, this whole thing of sort of faith versus works. Okay. Grace. So, in, in 2A, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. um, for a grace you can say through faith that of yourselves as a gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. So, this is really pretty clear. Yep. There's nothing to do with your works. Right. And it's relating to being saved. So, your salvation has nothing to do with your work. Is it, is it related to faith, or is it related to grace? The gift of God is grace. 
And by grace, you've been saved through faith. Right, so... So, um, so the, the works have nothing to do with your salvation. Correct. Well... And your salvation has nothing to do with you, so it has nothing to do with your works. So it's not of ourselves. It is grace. It's the grace of God, and that grace is a gift. But we have to accept it through faith. Totally unmerited. Grace versus work. Yeah, the the through faith piece is that um, when we enter into that grace, because it's possible to let that grace just bounce off. Say, you know, I know you want to save me, God, but I'm hell-bent on doing my agenda. Because we know that there are those that are that way. We read about it in the scripture. That there are some that are going to end up in hell. We're not of the, uh, of the uh, interpretive belief that all are saved and none are lost except the son of provision. Right? That's, that's, that's not where we're at. We understand that um, God comes to us. He has done an, an incredible, amazing work. Something that was you couldn't you couldn't have uh, in any imagination imagined that God did this, and He had it planned from before the foundation of the world, right? And yet He did it. He brought about the redemption of an utterly lost creation, and He did it through creation. Right, okay, but I'm not done with my question. Okay. So, so the, the works have nothing to do with our salvation. Correct. Has everything to do with God. Has everything to do with God's grace. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the very next verse is, For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ, for good works. Yes. That's why it seems like so overstated to say our works have nothing to do with our salvation. In the, if you take from that that they're not related to the salvation. Well, okay. I'll, I'll show you how they're related. So I'll, let me let me help you explain, or let me help you understand how they're related to salvation. They're related to salvation in that before you were lost, from before the foundation of the world, I believe that's what it says here. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Right. So God's intention for His creation was to do good works. That's why he could stand back and say, this is very good. Because my good is replicated. I have put my image upon my creation in such a way, not that I have made them God, but there are certain communicable attributes of who he is, that he is impressed, or made an image like it's a coin stamped, right? Um, He is actually impressed that part of himself, the ability to be loving, kind, and gracious, the ability to be creative, the ability to bring life rather than death, right? I mean, there are certain things that God could transfer into his creation, not that his creation becomes God equal with him. There is only one God, but that his goodness could be replicated. So that's the good work. And that's what we were created for. And then once we're saved, guess what? We can now step into that that we were created for. We were saved created for good, good works. works. Yes. Not by good works. Not created by good works. Not saved by good yeah, works. Not, the works have nothing to do with being saved. No. That's pretty clear. Right. But, 
perspective coming out. I mean, so in order to walk worthy of more one and right. be imitators of God and find one, we have to be doing these works of God, that these good so, works. So do you do it, or does the Spirit of God in you do it? Okay, might be the latter, but the point is, well, there is the latter, to be then, then good works. Well, what, and that's yes. James' argument. James' argument we're is for good works. Yeah, James. Are, yeah, we were created to do good works, and so that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Right? He was saying, you know, when you're saved, when you're born again, it's not something that you can um, identify and cut apart and codify and write down and make it a formula. Oh, this is how you do it. I mean, we kind of do that in a way. We say, oh, well, you need to have these elements in your confessional prayer and things like that. Um, but he's saying, no, no, no. It's, it's a work of the Spirit. It's wholly a new creature being created. And you have no part in that. It's not by the hands of men. But you will see the effect of it. It's like the wind blowing. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going to, but you see the effect of the wind. And that's what a good work is. You actually see the goodness of God in his children. Because, like father, like son. Pardon? That's my point to myself here. I'm trying to... Right. So, so the same thing for most of us happened a while back. Right. Okay. But the evidence, (laughs) I guess, is, is whether or not we actually are doing... His will and doing good works, and so and that's so that so yeah. so Jesus you know, actually gave a parable to that, right? The two sons, the one who um, the father says, "I want you to, to do this," and one says, "says Yeah, I'll do it readily," and then doesn't, and the other one says, "No, I'm not going to do that." And it, what happens at the end of the day? He says, yeah. I, "I do it. I'm going to do my father's will." So in the end, which one? was the obedient son. Not the one who looked like rebellion, but the one who did it. And so we can't judge by what we see on the outside because we don't know what happens in the final throw. Only God does. He sees the heart. And so um, it's especially, I, I, I really want to hold this up because you guys see me now. I'm 58 years old now, right? Um, I'm afraid to tell you about some of those years. Um, I have great shame around certain things in my life. And that happened as a Christian. I think probably the most shameful thing that I experienced was as a Christian because I could easily dismiss before a Christian my craziness and, and rebellion but as a Christian, I knew that I had that obligation of God's grace to be loving, kind, gracious, truthful, a person of integrity, all of those different things that the light of the Spirit is shining on me. And I said, I'm, I'm not going there, God. And so all of us have some aspect of that in our lives, right? I know today that God, that didn't surprise God at all. Um, he was still working in the midst of my rebellion. And, and in fact, that's what is occurring in Paul's life. He's still working in the midst of Paul's rebellion. Paul, even after he got knocked off his horse, didn't walk perfectly. Right? And yet we measure it by um, when we see the goodness, we 
oftentimes don't see that which God is doing to bring about that goodness. So God can, can um, and, and he does. And, and what James's point was, when you look at the argument of James, he said, if you never saw anything like that, you would probably question, is this person really saved, or are they just doing something on their own? Right? He says, I'll show you my faith by my good works. But that doesn't mean that the good works um, are the saving piece. And, um, and I have no clue if I actually do any good works today. I certainly, I hope I do. I hope I'm making some kind of positive impact for the kingdom of God. Um, and then I'm doing it not for my own end, but for, for that which so God desires. So your faith desires. isn't in good works that you spend a lot of time right. seeking to observe. Right. You're not a full-time fruit inspector of yours That's or right. Others. I'm not a fruit inspector of mine or others. Right. right. Because that's not what you seek. What you seek is right. more. Right. And, and, uh, and, and, and my wife's holding up the five minutes over flag. So I got to wrap up here. But, uh, let me, let me actually read, um, this piece about that Paul writes about the unity of the church. Um, it's not going to address the issue of, uh, good works, but it is going to, uh, bring in the issue that I wanted to bring up that, This is a level playing field. We're all uh, in this together. This is the church of Christ. That when we have been saved by grace through faith, um, that we are not alone. And that if you find yourself in hardship and and struggle and tribulation, um, that that can actually be an area to rejoice. Paul was a prisoner. Why was he a prisoner? Because he believed that this was for everybody. If he would have said to the Jew, okay, Christ is just for you, they would have not locked him up. They would have just made him a little sect, just like the Pharisees were a sect. But because he said it was for everybody, that's why they locked him up. So he was a prisoner for the goodness of God to save humanity. And that's what he says. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... And then he goes on, like Dave does, into some rabbit trail. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight from the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the least, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence, confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So this is 
This is Paul doing the good work that God created him for. And he's saying, I'm a prisoner, and don't take that as a bad thing. Don't be ashamed of the good work that God is doing, even though it put me in chains. That's where we need to live, and we need to have hope. We need to have hope that God created us for good works, and he will not give up until that is finished. Right? That's what it says in Philippians. He will finish that which he started in us. Have hope in that. Um, And be less critical as a fruit inspector. Um, Yeah, let's go ahead and close here. Lord, we just thank you for opportunity um, to come to your word, um, to wrestle through it, to truly try and understand what is a good work and and, uh, how does... How does that challenge us? How does that, as I used my word, obligate us, Lord, um, that we need to be gracious as you have been gracious, that we need to be kind and loving and forgiving and just as you are all of those things and much, much more, Lord. And we feel so um, imperfect in that, and yet we know that you are doing a good work in us. And Lord, uh, open our eyes this week to the good work that you're doing in us and also Give us strength and encouragement to continue in that work, that which we've been called to, whether it would be a student or employer or employee or father or wife or child. How, whatever um, you put us in this week, Lord, um, help us to be faithful as you are faithful, um, not because it's a work that we do, but because it's who you are. Lord, we thank you for all of this. We thank you for your protection and provision for us in a dangerous and... and uh, violent world against us Lord we thank you that um, you brought peace to us thank you Lord Jesus for all of this we thank you for your sacrifice for us and we ask that you be with um, the messages that goes out this morning thank you Lord Jesus for all of this in your name we pray Amen. amen